Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Focused on Forward. It's my pleasure today to welcome Wendy Weiner-Rungi to our show. Wendy has a really interesting story, and it's one of those things that when you hear about it, you, you don't understand how a travesty of injustice can happen so so greatly to one person. And going through Wendy's story, and I've read a lot of things online, uh, different news articles about what she went through, how it happened, why it happened. And I'll be honest with you, it still doesn't make sense to me. And I'm sure that uh, to Wendy, it doesn't really make sense either. But in 2011, May, uh, May in fact, of 2011, Wendy was sentenced to 10 years in prison uh, in the state of Iowa uh, for a crime that, as it come to find out, she did not commit. And uh, we'll let her go into a little bit about what that was and, and how it all happened. And, uh, and, and mostly, like any other time here on Focused on Forward, we're interested in seeing not only what happened with her, but how she learned to become focused on forward and when was the time when she was able to move past the things that had happened. So, Wendy, thank you for being here today and welcome to Focused on Forward. I'm honored to be here, Tim. Thank you for including me. This is really a great opportunity to share a wacky story that has hopefully has the happiest ending imaginable. Well, there you go. Excellent. So yeah, when you're ready, go ahead and take us through your story. So crazy. Uh, I'm a film producer. I produce feature films and our next project is called My Golden Blood. And that's going to television because I don't know if you've heard about it, Tim. There's this like pandemic thing going around. Whatever. <laughs> and it's kind of shut down theatrical. So originally we wrote my Golden Blood for a theatrical release, which is what I was accustomed to. And um, then the world changed and movie theaters kind of didn't, you know, I'm just saying, in case you didn't know, look it up. So um, we shifted to television. And um, I've been doing this since 2007. I was handed a script by, uh, sent a script by someone, said, hey, I know you have an English literature degree. Check it out, see what you think. Read it, gave him some pointers, thought it was interesting, like the story arcs. He handed it back to me and said, hey, would you consider executive producing the first 12 pages as a short film, kind of to, as a teaser, kind of to get Hollywood interested? And I had to Google, I had to go to the Google and look at what a short, an executive producer does. And it was just the same thing as what a Jewish mom does. And I'm Jewish mom. You take people <laughs> and projects and get them together and get them and get it out. So, you know, snow pants, kids, snowy day, same thing. So I thought, yeah, I said, interesting, and took it on for the summer, and it went off. Um, we sent it off to some people we knew in L.A., et cetera. Got a deal in Hollywood, but only if I was involved. So it was kind of an unexpected and really interesting career shift. Um, I don't mean to be self-effacing, but I really i am not, like, trying to be, oh, I'll humble. No, I really only have three skill sets. I can write. I can tell a pretty darn good story. And I collect amazing people who do the rest of the stuff. So I'm a 10,000 foot gal. I have like, hey, let's do this. That's a great plan. Let's take that on. And then I have to bring in a whole bunch of people who are much shorter distance. Their, their drones aren't so far off the ground, as it were. And they can say, yeah, let's help. this is how it gets done. And we have to order this. We have to do this. So uh, it was a really, it was a good fit for me. So I took it on and then was enticed, was invited to come down to Iowa to produce, I live in Minnesota. And in the Iowa, the film commissioner in the state of Iowa, he worked for the Department of Economic Development and he was a very official guy working on the state capitol. And he said, hey, I, I heard you got a film, a feature film. Why don't you shoot it here in Iowa? We've just enacted legislation that provides the most generous incentive in the country. And you should come and check it out. And I said, 
that's interesting. You know, why I've worked in economic development in the past, and I know that, you know, tell me why they did this. And they said, well, the legislature saw the economic blip that happened from when they made the film uh, Field of Dreams. You go in and you have to buy a lot of, you have to buy a lot of hotels and you got to feed people and there's booze that's bought and like everything. I know for me on this, on the set of my first feature film in Iowa was The Scientist. And um, our lead actor had previously, in another film, had his front teeth knocked out by Marissa Tomei with a lawn chair in a scene where he went left, she went right, and whatever happened. And it was in the scene. And his calls me, they, he calls me and he says, on a Sunday morning, he said, my bridge for my front teeth is loose. What do I do? So I had to find an emergency dentist at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning and spent a tremendous amount of money to get that cemented in so you could be on set at 11 o'clock. Like that was like, that was, so you spent a lot of money in crazy places. So they saw the economic development. You'd hire local electricians, builders, custodial, like you could do a lot of stuff sure. with that money if they incentivize you. So it made a lot of sense. So I understood that from an economic development perspective as, as well as as a producer, and I'm from Omaha originally. My my parents and my grandparents were all from Iowa. But I was I'm from Omaha. I live right across the river. And I said I would like to shoot on the on the western side of Iowa, like Council Bluffs, which is by far one of the most economically disadvantaged towns in Iowa. And I said we can go into the high schools and we can provide jobs for these kids and training and things like that because if you're enacting this legislation, there's going to be a lot of a lot of film crews coming and they're like this is great we love it that's great so we did we hired local people we had had unemployed guys we hired builders we had a bunch of a bunch of locals art people like prop masters like staff in the office like everything it becomes a little city and you have to have 60 people probably and you have to feed them house them clothe them you know you have to take care of them right that's what they want us to do that's what we did makes perfect sense every mm-hmm. single Every single thing I did was documented by three attorneys, my entertainment attorney and a CPA attorney in Iowa, because we're talking about tax credits sure. and a business attorney in Iowa. So, um, so much so it was vetted. And so that my entertainment attorney asked me to help him produce a film in Iowa. That was my second film. And I said, sure, I'll help you, of course, because he had made such thorough um Valid, he validated it so thoroughly that it was like, okay, this is what we do. So I did, we did the first film and, um, and the state kind of, it kept accepting other people and, and it was getting, but they're making a lot, a lot of, a lot of money. A lot of cities were come, were getting this economic boom and they really, they, mm-hmm. they recognized it. They said, please do more. Please come with me to the, to the, uh, in LA and we're going to, display at a big trade show and you're talking about Iowa, your experiences in Iowa. So with the state film commissioner. So I did at my own expense. And um, they said, please bring more business. So I recruited Penny Marshall, make sure rest in peace. Her executive producer was a friend of a friend of our producer. And I said, Hey, I said, you know, she said, Penny's got a great project that could be shot in like that kind of need farmland. I'm like, we, they got that. And the movie The Help, I know the producers, and they had looked at Iowa for projects as made possibly The Help even. And so like it was like snowballing in, a, in what they said was a great way until all of a sudden there was fraud from a couple of other, a few other producers. One producer, I think, bought a Mercedes to, to I'm making finger quotes here, to use it on the set, but it was never used. It was just driving back and forth. The state of Iowa paid for that $60,000 car and he drove back to LA and lives happily ever after. We didn't pull any of that crap. We were so right. restrictive on this is what we have and this is what we can use and this is what we, this does not qualify. And there was nothing there to use. I mean, there were no cameras or anything. So everything we, we the, all the grip equipment, like lighting, everything, had been brought down in a big truck from Minneapolis. And they have pre-established trucks like how big is your production? Okay, you're going to need these lights and these cords mm-hmm. and these things and these bulbs. And, and you have to have a special broom for it because I rented a broom. 
But you have to have a room that's specially designated for that particular, for lighting. Because if a bulb breaks, then you have to be able to sweep it up with that room and then you have to dispose of that room in a toxic dump because it's got things in it. I don't know, murky, whatever it was. Sure. And yeah. so better than me buying a $25 broom and then having to figure out at the end of the shoot where's a toxic waste. They had the facilities to bag it, tag it, and then take it back and then have their own disposal system. Like, I didn't have to do that. Right. But man, they, they love the idea that I spent $5 and need to rent a room. Well, it wasn't just a broom. It was that room. But they, but interestingly enough, Tim, from the day I was arrested, sitting at my dining room table, just like I'm sitting here now, got a phone call. There's a warrant for your arrest. The program had collapsed, and they decided because I had the most outstanding projects. I had 11 contracts. They were ratified by the state for a total of $84 million of the progress projects. Oh, wow. One of them was Penny. One of them was Penny Marshall's. One of them was with his, like a bunch of stuff. And so they decided that, well, they didn't want to pay me because, again, a contract, if it's ratified by both parties and one party redags, they have to pay off the other party. So at 50%, they owed me $42 million. So from the moment I was arrested in February of 2010, there's a warrant for your arrest. You need to come to Iowa, blah, blah, blah. And they changed the charges multiple times. Dropped them, changed them. Dro I started with 15 and I was five when I went to trial, like a whole bunch of stuff. Wow. And I said, and I said let me explain what happened. And they said, well, that's not necessary. We've done our investigation. From the moment I was arrested, sitting right here in this exact spot, Till today, I've never been questioned. Not one person in Iowa cared what really happened. They just knew they didn't want to, they just didn't want to pay me $42 million, which I would never have accepted. My family's from Iowa. I'm not taking money from Iowans if the work's not done. Like, I'm not doing that. They never questioned me. How, Ever. How, now, how you do you get through the process without being questioned? They make a decision that you're guilty based on evidence that they have and, and witnesses, alleged witnesses who say, yeah, yeah, she said she was doing this. And they don't take any of the of the evidence that you present because I documented everything. My attorneys document everything. They, the, like aspect of it, the, everything, they didn't want to hear it. My attorney is a man named Matthew Whitaker. And Matthew Whitaker became the acting attorney general of the United States. He was that highly regarded. It wasn't like... I had Joe in a, you know, who works out of a diner. It was right, like you have Joe bag of donuts over there. Exactly. Love that. So um, Matt was extraordinarily come out of the U.S. Attorney's Office, had been a prosecutor and defended me because, and he had a, has a film degree from University of Iowa and an MBA and then his law degree. And he was like a football player, but regardless, and I searched a long time for an attorney who could understand all the ramifications. And he did. So, this, so 10 producers had filed an injunction against the state of Iowa, long, which had happened before I was arrested. And these 10 producers got together, and I was one of the 10. And we said, look, we were directed to do this. Oh, by the way, before I was arrested, the, the state film commissioner was arrested. The guy who told us what to do based on the legislation. And by the mm -hmm. way, the legislation specifically says he has sole directive authority. What he says goes. Okay. So they filed an injunction against the state, the 10 of us, saying, we did what we were told. Why are we held liable now? Like this is, and we had all the proof. And so, and we won the injunction, by the way. The producers won. The, the, the injunction hearing happened after I um, had been arrested. But we won. And where they, they, the judge said, you're right. You did what the state had said to do. Now, subsequently, they got that overturned on some kind of a crazy thing. Regardless, so I had, we had a big part of my defense was built on what I had said or what I would have said had I been allowed to speak. I did what I was told to do, and it was approved by my attorneys. That this was the, this exactly was the directive. Here's the evidence. Here's 50 pages of emails and memos, et cetera. And I did this. They didn't want to hear it. And so what they did, so that the day where the they prosecution rests, oh, my God, $5 a day for a broom. What kind of an idiot? Yada, yada, she's screwing the state, yada, yada. Um, the, the prosecution rests. 
defense. And we said, tomorrow we, we open and we're going to use that injunction transcript, a transcript of an injunction of five successful producers who are producing in Iowa. We get to this, the trial that, that morning and the judge calls my attorney to the bench and he says, I'm sorry. He said, I've made a decision. You're not allowed to use the injunction transcripts. It's not, it's not relevant. Wow. Go on with your, you're like, well, that was, and people who subsequently, I met attorneys subsequently. So the, the trial was the, 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 my trial was the state teaching case at Drake University Law School that year because it was so high profile. And it was the first trial. I got the, the bad mojo to get the first trial before the film commissioner, before anybody else. And, um, and there are only three trials total of any, and that I'm aware of. And um, when I um, judge, lawyers have asked me who were in that. I was in that. I was in the courtroom for that. I had to be there for, and I want to know, why was your attorney so unprepared? Never in our wildest dreams do we anticipate that the, an injunction transcript was going to be thrown out because it was it had no relevance. And we argued it, and the judge was like, no, I don't want to hear it. I made my decision. The fix was in. They didn't want to pay me $42 million. Had they come to me and asked me once, are you going to sue for the $42 million? The answer is no. They never asked me. Wow. They didn't care. They just had a – they had to get somebody – and I was, uh, I had the most. And all the other producers were suing and winning. I never would. I never would have sued. It wasn't my money. Those producers were suing and winning. And they, rightly so, because they had started their productions already and they got shut down in the middle. Well, there's expense there. So recoup right. that. I hadn't started any of the others. I had just finished one and I was prepping for another one. So fast forward, they realize one thing that, that what's the key the key element in any court hearing in a trial is a judge i'm sorry an attorney never asks a question in court they don't already know the answer to so at some point in time the defense is getting ready and i am on the witness list between you and me and the lamppost i was never going to take the stand unless everything was going south that why because i'm a terrible witness I get emotional. I get pissed off. I, I, I cut people off. I'm, it's not, I'm not, I wouldn't have been a good witness. He professionally, like 30 years, the FBI, and he assesses the value of a witness. And then, and he trains the witnesses that need to be, you know, here's, here's how you answer. Here's what you do. Right. He said on a scale, you know, you, there's like 44 things that you need to do or not do. And he said, you screwed up like 39 of them. <laughs> so I was like, so high risk to put on the stand. That said, I took the stand for two other defendants later on after I'd been convicted, uh, after, after I pled guilty. So they realized, oh, crap, she could take the stand and we've never questioned her. So what do we do? We start throwing plea markets at her. On the eighth day of the trial, my attorney comes in the morning and says, look, they want to make you a plea bargain. And I said, there's no way I'm going to be a convicted felon. If you want to talk misdemeanor, and, and I'm in, but I'm not. And they said, no, they're, they're not going to give up on the felony thing because they want to get you. That's how they're going to celebrate. So you have the option to do and whatever. And they kept and he, I said, no. And he went back to him and they reduced it and reduced it for the fourth time. They came back with a plea bargain. He said, I think you're going to need to take this. Here's their offering. They'll stand silent at sentencing. They won't say we want this. They want this, you know when you get x amount of years or whatever number one number two they will not there's zero restitution now you know and i know that if you have a parking ticket and it oh crap what is that that's a fine that fine is restitution how is it that i am the biggest criminal in the state of iowa they accuse me of defrauding two different departments of state government right which is all bogus because i'm not i'm so not that smart I just asked them, tell us what to do. Well, we're not sure. Well, that's not on me. And so I defrauded two different parts of state government, and they, I was a hardened criminal, and yada, yada. History, and I planned this, and they turned a bunch of the people that I worked with, they turned it against me, a couple of them, because they threatened them with like 10 years in prison, because that's like that. And so he said, so they're going to stand silent. There's zero restitution request required. 
and um, you just have to plead guilty to one thing and then you can go home. And I was like, you know, I talked to my rabbi, I talked to my husband. I was like, okay. And then I looked at my list of the five charges and the one that was the most stupid, the charge was causing the, um, what's the phrase? Causing the modification of an application for the purpose of someone else to do business in Iowa. That means that I forwarded an email. There was a production company out of California who we had a mutual friend, an attorney, and he said, call Wendy, I don't know the answer to that question. And they said, we've got everything, we've got so-and-so, we've got all these people involved, whatever. And we have the application, but we need to change the name of the production company because of legal things that are ever. And the, can we do that? And I said, I don't know, I don't answer questions. So I took their email and I forwarded that to the, the state official and said, can you help these ladies with, on this, with this, these producers with this question? And that's it. And he emailed me back only, not reply all, just me. And he said, anything can be modified on an application until it goes to contract. And I forwarded that email to these women who I had no commercial relationship with. I was not getting okay. a dime for this. I was okay. And I said, if you tell me I was not supposed to forward the email from the state official to the, this production company, I did not know and I accept responsibility because I thought it was just stupid. Like what a ridiculous charge. And they, they said, fine, we'll accept that. Yada, yada, I'm out of there. Sentencing is May 17th, I think May 17th. So I go back for sentencing and the judge has already decided and it's probably on YouTube somewhere. People told me they've watched it subsequently. They're gonna rip me a new one. He says, you are an unrepentant criminal. You have corrupted, yada, yada, da, 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 da. and he said, I'm going to give you the maximum because you, people like you should never be allowed to do business anywhere again. Yada, yada. Wow. Rip me a new one. I was like, what? So fast. So then they shackle me and they take me away and Matt walks me to the elevator and he says that I said to him, have a nice max. They shackled me up, walked me to the elevator, put me in the elevator. Offenders like me, we have to stand backwards in an elevator. Why? Because he might spit on other people. So over my shoulder, I said that to him, and he was like, just, he said, that hurt me so deeply. When you think I'd leave you there? We hadn't prepared for this at all. We didn't have, we thought, okay, three, five years of probation, three, we didn't have any idea they were going to throw Right. They, they stood silent, full finger quotes. They, the, the judge had already pre-decided that he was going to give you the max for the effect, right? So Yeah, sounds to it. Yeah. Uh, so I get into jail, and I'm like, wow, this is interesting. Now, interestingly enough, the, the guard who took me to jail, who took me, it's like a block underground, and they shackle you up ankles and waist and hands, and then they parade you in front of the TV cameras, and go, you go into this tunnel. So I'm in a tunnel with this strange guy. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is really an interesting, this is interesting. And I said to him, um, I said, are, are you, you know, are you from Iowa? And he said, well, I'm originally from Minnesota. I said, oh, I'm from Minnesota. He goes, I know. Everybody knows all about you. I was like, oh. And so what you do in Minnesota? Like I'm walking here and I'm, we're just making casual conversation. And I remember like this tight, 100-year-old, probably 80-year-old like brick tunnel that we're going through tiny and he said well i went to mcad which is the minneapolis college of art and design i said wow you got into mcad you must be really a talented artist meanwhile the shackles were so hard they were literally cutting into me and he said are the shackles tight i said yeah they're they're killing me and he's like let me loosen this up for you the minute i plugged into who he was and he said yeah i just couldn't afford to stay there and i moved here my wife's from here and whatever he loosened the shackles just enough so it's not miserable. Mm-hmm. He said, I wish I could do more. And I get in to the, to the holding cell, get to that. And the first guard is a woman that I see. And she says to me, boy, you got screwed. They were after you. And I was like, wow. what? We already know all about it. We already, and we, we are so sorry. This is the guard saying this to me. 
sure enough, one thing after another, my attorney worked magic and I was out that day. Thank God. And so um, I was out in a matter of hours and it was just this quick transition. And then because this hooker next sitting there on the on the bench next to me in the holding cell says to me, what, what, what you got in your papers? And I'm like, hold it, clutch it. They handed me some paperwork. I had no idea what it was. I hadn't like taken a minute to regroup and read it. It's a lot to take in. And I she can. looks over my shoulder and goes, lot, lot to take in. Like, wow. And sure enough, a few hours later, I was out. And I was like, okay. And then I said, and I want you to handle the appeal. He said, attorneys who lose a case like this don't ever handle an appeal. I'm like, I only trust you. And I know you'll fight for my life. Because the reality of it is, is that between, I'm an Orthodox Jew. So between the white supremacist and the ladies who are, you know, different religious affiliations, whatever, we knew that I was at risk. I wasn't so worried, but the, the statistics, ain't, are, they ain't good. So right. I, um, so he did, he fought like heck for two years and I was able to, and then finally the Iowa Supreme Court wouldn't hear it. They just all turned a blind eye. No, no, no. And so I had to surrender in February of 2013 and I went in and I was like, well, this is going to be a super, I mean, it's horrible for our kids. Horrible for my husband. My parents aged 10 years. And, um, but I like, okay, this is going to be an experience that not a lot of people get. So I'm going to look at it. And I, I got to be honest, like, I'm not, a, I'm not a saint. I was mad the whole time sure. through the trial. I was, I was so angry. Like, this is so stupid. I didn't do a single thing I wasn't directed to do. Oh, subsequently, let me backtrack. A few months after, two months after I was sentenced, the state, uh, the former state official, the film commissioner, went on trial. And he went on trial for nine felony counts. And he had, at my, he had subpoenaed me as a defense witness of all things. A little weird, but whatever. He and the <laughs> tax credit broker. I know, both hit me with subpoenas. I showed up. People that I subpoenaed to support me did not bother to show up. Not some attorneys, some this and like didn't, didn't bother. I didn't get the subpoena. Bull roar. Anyway, so people who could have just said, hey, we did, she did what she was to do. Nope, because they put themselves at risk to it. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm going to go and tell the truth. I didn't have a personal relationship with this guy. It wasn't like, hey, let's go out for dinner. It was like, here's a form that you hand out over the, to back at the DMV. That was the level of like, oh, there you go. That was my relationship with the guy. So um, only then I got called to the stand and they, it was like, a, they thought I was easy to bend at that point in time. And I, I mean, I'd already been sentenced to 10 years, like, you know, and uh, I take the stand and the um, prosecutor who was the attorney general of the state of Iowa said to me, you know, he said, do you think, and so you act like you're a scapegoat. And I didn't say anything. That captured the attention of the, of the jury. And he was, um, Tom Wheeler, the former film commissioner, was acquitted on eight counts of the nine. And the one count he was convicted of was felonious misconduct in office for misdirecting Wendy Weinerungi. So he was convicted, two months after I was sentenced, he was convicted by a jury of, of mishandling me. And that information is not admissible in an appeal for a ridiculously long sentence. How is that not admissible? How is it transcript? How's the injunction transcript? Well, yeah, I know. It's I get just, that. It's just, it's, it's it mind numbing. It's just, so they said it's not admissible. It's inadmissible. So he had the same judge I had. He had a jury. They, he had done a lot of PR that I was not allowed to do because I'd never been questioned. Then if I said something, you know, that could be used against me, it was like, I couldn't. So that said, he had a very savvy jury, a judge, um, attorney who was a Yale graduate, and she really did a good job. So the one thing he was convicted of, the same judge who gave me 10 years for corrupting two different departments of state government, after when Tom was, was specifically convicted of misdirecting me, I didn't do it, he did. And that same judge gave him a $750 fine 
oh, two boy. years of probation. And he walked away. Wow. He wrote a check for $750. I spent $300,000 on my defense. I don't have a lot of contributions, a lot of loans, a lot of help from a lot of people. And I went to prison. So as soon as I get in, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a crazy adventure that not a lot of people get to have. And in so doing and taking that perspective, I was like, well, I changed the anger, made the decision that the anger had to switch to like, wow, this is an adventure. And it was, Tim, it was, I wouldn't recommend it. I'm not saying, hey, go do that. It was an incredible adventure. It was I met some of those amazing people. Hey, you know, go to an amusement park or go to prison. No, but I decided that I was gonna I was gonna take every opportunity to be a light for everybody else, and that's what I did. And it was, and every good thing that was happening to me was something that God was doing for me. I was like that. That was my that was my perspective. Okay. And I spent a lot of time, so much so, so a lifer who I'm very close with, life with no chance of parole, did not commit a crime had a hearing while I was there where she was um, every 10, she'd been there for 30 years. And every 10 years, she had the opportunity to speak to the parole board because one person a year is granted a commutation. The, the governor does it for Christmas, a male and a female. And every 10 years, she got one chance to speak for herself. She'd been there 30 years and she and I went over her records. It was so clear that she was innocent, had not committed any sort of a crime at all. And she'd been, since she was 17, so at 47 years old, she came to me with her files and she said, I don't know who else to go to. My attorney has heart problems and he can't come to the jail to prepare me and prison for me. And I don't know what to say to them. I have 45 minutes and they're going to ask you questions for 45 minutes. I have 45 minutes and I have no idea what to say. So I combed through her files and I looked, I saw she clearly had been just railroaded into the scenario. And um, I walked her through with, how do you, I'm a theater gal. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a movie producer. Like this is, I audition people. I, I, I script, I like this. And I said, it's clear to me that you were tried and convicted as a child. And, and there was a case that I was Supreme court to her benefit and a few others who were tried and convicted as adults when they were really children and it was illegal. It was against the Iowa State Constitution. And they, this Iowa Supreme Court, had they sat on it for like a year. They didn't want to touch it because it really was a harsh whatever. Anyway, it would, be a, it would be rebuking a lot of older people if they, whatever. Long story short. And I said, you have to keep telling the, this, the parole board that you were a child and the, the, what you did wrong was you got into the car of a man you didn't know. By the way, that car was driven by a paid police informant. And that paid police informant was told to go collect her because she was a runaway. And she'd been, she had been um, cleaning the house of her best friend's grandfather. That's what she did for pocket money, for money. And he needed some help. And he, this guy said, hey, aren't you so-and-so? He had her picture. We're friends with so-and-so. He, he knew all her friends. And she was naive and she, he said, can I give you a ride home? And she's like, sure. And he said, but I got to use the bathroom. And she said, well, I just cleaned the house up there. So if you, you need to use the restroom and you're giving me a ride, I, I, he'll probably let you do it. So the guy comes running out 10 minutes later, blood on his sweatshirt. He's killed grandpa. He'd got $40 in cash. He thought the old guy would have more. And she's in the car and he gets in the car and takes off. And he's like, I killed the guy, whatever. And she is... Because she afforded him access, she said, oh. you can use my name. She was, they were tried simultaneously. So she didn't know, he blamed her that she had planned it all. She had no, and she didn't know what he was saying against her. He was convicted, she was convicted. He died shortly after of cancer and she was serving her life sentence with no chance of role. Life, by the way, in Iowa was 60 years not 20 years in Nebraska or 30 years, whatever, it's 60 years. So I said, you have to keep telling them, repeat over and over again, even if they get mad about it. You were a child and you got it, you made a mistake by getting in a car with someone you didn't know. And that was your crime. That's, that's where you, and so she said, and the fourth time she said it, the head of the parole board said, I wasn't allowed to be there, but the head of the parole board said, okay, enough, we know you were a child and you made a mistake. 
And the editorial writer from the Des Moines Register heard that and went, wait a minute. They know she made a mistake. Like, what the hell is going on? And subsequently, the day that I was released, miraculously released, that day, the Iowa Supreme Court overturned her life with no chance of parole. Awesome. Sentence. She had chance parole. And now she's engaged to a great guy. Um, she's successful. She's a free. She, the first day she called me, we wept, wept. So I was able to affect positive change. I wrote commutations for women who did not commit a crime who were there for life. They are walking free now because President Obama granted the commutation. There are women I wrote appeals and and letters to the pro-law, pro, whatever, because I could, because again, I only have three skills. I write, I collect, and I tell stories and they intertwine. And so, and I worked with the women to help let them know that they could use their skills. Let's identify them, use your skills, and let's and go on with the rest of your life. You don't have to be here. 75% of the women that I was incarcerated with were um, will, will return to prison. Only 25 of us will never, God willing, will never return to prison. 25%, the 75% recidivism rate. Why? Because they don't think they're worthy. They don't think they have value. And I explained to them, they do have tremendous value. And here you can take these, some of the best women, I've, business women I've ever met were crack dealers. They understood marketing and business and, and secured like everything more than I've ever been, most people now. That said, I decided this was my chance to be a light. And so then I just did whatever I could at any minute of the day. I'll stay up all night long, writing commutations, writing appeals, writing whatever I could. So much so that the day before, so this lifer, Christy, the one who was now free um, after 30 years, 32 years, she uh, said to me, you know, you need to just file for your own sentence motion for sentence reconsideration. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, there's a procedure that if you file the paperwork, and it was like 75 cents to file the paperwork in the, in the library. That was it. She said, if, you fi- if we file this correctly and you get some support, you'll be out of here by the end of the summer. I was like, you're kidding. And she was right. 100% right. So I filed my own sentence for motion reconsideration. They were afraid of my attorney. So I let him know that I was doing this. He did not agree with it, but I let him know that I was doing it. He said, the judge hates you. He's not going to consider it. He was right in that aspect of it. Um, I filed it. And after 30 days, he has to decide on it. He has to notify me if he's going to hear it or he's not going to. And he just declined to open the open the mail and read it for 30 days, 35 days. Called my husband and said, you know, I should have gotten a notification back. And he called the clerk of court. And the judge says, I didn't think I sh- it was appropriate for me to open it. What the hell is that? Like, this is job. More, more times than I can explain, he breached the ethics, legal ethics to screw me. There you go, whatever, to get, to get me in a position. That said, the chief judge got wind of this, Judge Gamble, God bless him, took it away from the, from the judge who was handling it, called me into court and said, I don't know why you're here at all. Had I been presiding, it would have been a completely different outcome and you're going home today. And for sure, Tim, I went home that day. So That's I spent awesome. six months and four days in prison, um, did everything that I could. So the day before I was going to see the judge, I, um, the chief judge, uh, by myself, pro se, um, no attorney present, the um, counselor called me in and she said, look, I hope you don't get released. I said, you know, check me if I'm wrong, but isn't it my job? Isn't it your job to get us out? She's like, yeah, some people, but they're because they're a pain in the butt. But you help everybody here. And I was like, well, I'm going to go mentor my own <laughs> So I got a calling to go be with my kids and my husband and try and rebuild my life. And so I'm, I'm going to go the other way, but thanks for your vote of confidence. And, um, and uh, you know, and I was released. And I came home. And you think, wow, you take a deep breath, right? And like I get home and everyone's like shocked because it was miraculous, literally a miracle. Get home and um, Tuesday morning, I'm sitting at the same damn dining room table and I uh, get a call from a deputy in the state of Iowa. And he said, "Uh, Wendy Weinerungi? I said, yes, sir. And he said, and I see the 515 area code. I'm like, really? And he said, this is so-and-so. There's a warrant being issued for your arrest because you left the state of Iowa without permission. And I said, I was given a directive by the chief judge 
in open court on Friday at 11.55 a.m. that I was going, he was sending me home. I was going home today with my husband back to Minnesota. And the deputy said, well, the judge didn't have the authority to do that. What? So, yeah. So I was like, every time I do anything in Iowa, like I'm allergic, I break out in handcuffs. Like, what is the deal? <laughs> so I called my attorney and he was out of town and he's like, get back. And they're like, get back to Iowa. Just get back into Iowa. Here, I'll, I'll book a room for you. You stay, whatever. I'll take care of this, whatever. And then I'll, I'll call the judge and you get into, um, you go see him in the morning. And the judge, he calls you back. He's like, the judge is shocked. It's never happened before. He's so, super pissed. But the attorney general, who wanted me, chose not to sign off on the agreement. So here's the deal. The whole time I'm like, this is so, this is such uh, by the way, I'm, I have an injunction against me. I'm prohibited from writing a book or a movie about what they did. Can't talk about it at all. I did get an offer to go write for Orange is the New Black. And, and I actually brought the offer to these two women who were like, hey, you, you spend 50 years in prison and the two of you come with me. I'll pay for everything. Let's go to Hollywood. And they're like, they both said no for the same reason. We don't want to live in that. That was a terrible, horrible chant. They, they, were, they were so they didn't want to go back to that. And the set was actually in the prison. Like, we don't want to do that. I was like, I hear you. I, I'm, I'm with you. So um, I go back and they make me go to this like halfway house, seven o'clock, like sundown time on a Wednesday night. And it's like halfway house in the middle of like a really cheesy neighbor, uh, not a good neighborhood, sketchy neighborhood. And they make and I drive up and they make me go in and, and sign this one paper. Couldn't do it at the Capitol. Couldn't do it anywhere else. Had to do it this, oh, this halfway house will help you. I'm not in a halfway house. A dude's halfway house, right? So I meeting out and I walk down the sidewalk. It's like um, like a bunch of guys on chairs and sitting or whatever, sitting on a brick, whatever. And they're like, just like they got nothing else to do, smoking cigarettes, hanging out, trying to stay clean and whatever. And I, I see this one guy at the, like, and I was like, tiny? And he was a big dude. Six two three eighty, and he goes, "Yeah, what you want?" I said, "Is your mama Dorothy?" And his face just melts. He goes, "You know my mama?" I said, "I was just in Mitchellville with her. She's my bunkmate. She loves you so much, and she's so proud of you." And this dude goes, "Get out of the way! This is what's your name?" I said, "My name's Wendy." And he goes, "Get out of the way! This is my friend." And he like all the other guys who are catcalling and having issues, whatever. I recognize Tiny because his mom, my bunkmate, had a picture of him taped on her wall. <laughs> That's fantastic. Of all, like of all of God's like cool things. So he walks me and I said, I have to sign the paperwork. He goes, oh yeah, you, I heard about you. Da, 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 da. Saw you on the news and da, da, da. okay, great. So newspapers and goes and he walks me back to my car and he walks the car all the way down the street. And he goes, you can be okay. You go home. I didn't stop in Iowa, Tim, to go to the bathroom or to buy a soda. I, I was like, I'm done. No, let's get so out of that state as fast I thought as I was possible. Yeah, we're done. Don't give them another chance. Did my two years of probation in Minnesota, and um, to which the first time I went in to the probation officer's office, they're like, they give you, in Iowa, they give you a 17-page survey, and then in Minnesota, they give you the kind of the same thing. Are you married? You know, do you have a relationship with your parents? Do you use drugs? Like, oh, you know, criminal history, yada, yada. And then they give you a rating based on that, that how you answer those questions. And I... Years and kids and lose you my kid, like everything. And so in Iowa, to just to give me another stick in the tuchus, right in the butt, they they said they gave me a score, like I was a child killer, like so. Oh god! So they I get the score, and then the probation office in Minnesota looks at the paperwork, and they're like, "Girl, what did you do to make them so angry?" I'm like, "I have no idea." And they laughed at me. They're like, this is so ridiculous. Look at these charges. You didn't even do it, like whatever. And they treated me so well. And they said, you're on administrative probation, which means if you leave the state for any time, even cross this, the border to go to Wisconsin by fireworks, you have to have permission. And you have to carry that permission with you. And that was it. And then I started getting speaking offers all over the world. And I was like, well, I can't possibly go. And I was like, well, 
So I reached out to the judge, Judge Gamble, God bless him. And he, I said, I've been asked to come go speak in London. And, um, you know, it's uh, pays well. And I'd like to, would the judge be amenable to lie? He goes, of course, that's great. He said, I hope you're able to get operation as soon as possible, because I would, I would end it immediately if I could. And whatever, and I'll please be in touch. Let me know your progress and what you're doing. And I'm here, whatever. It was great. And so I went to London. I went to Budapest. I went to, to Belgium. I went to Israel. I went all places. I went to Istanbul. Like I went and spoke and talked about how do you find how do you find light in dark places? And the answer is you have to decide that there's light first. That's the only answer. It's a decision we make every step of the day. I find people say, "Oh, it's so dark." Oh, you know. I get it. You have to decide, you know what, there is light. And if I don't see it right now, I'm going to find it. And then look for the things that you're like, wow, look, you know, that was a good thing. This, so what, I have to go to prison at all. I didn't commit a crime. I'm a suck criminal. I'm a kind of nice gal and I'm a mom. Like, I get it. So what's the deal? Because I had to learn this so that I could help other people find light in dark places. And I, ha- I never had a mo- I never had an altercation. I never had a moment's trouble with anybody. White supremacists, the Muslim gals, like nobody. Everybody was my friend. Everybody. Go to the Jewish girl. The reality is, if you want to find the light, that sometimes means you have to be the light. And there's always right. someone who needs light. I have an expression that I kind of got a trademark it probably, whatever. Where there's a need, there's a seed. Like I was planted there specifically to, for these women who didn't ha- think they had any way to change their lives. And I could say, look, you can. Now my job as I'm released and I am, I will always be a convicted felon. I did get my voting rights back last year, which was a huge, huge surprise. The governor of Iowa, who's a, a different governor, who's a good gal, said, um, Oh, allowed us because Iowa was one of the three states that once you're a convicted felon, you never have a right to vote anywhere. But they overturned that. I was it was overturned for me, so that's great. I, I can't hold office. I can't have a gun. Blah, I don't care. Whatever. That's it. Those things I can live without. I'm not going to hold office. I, I don't want it. But um, what I learned was that I, I will always be a convicted felon. I don't that label, and I kind of wear it proudly because I got through it. And I, on the other side of it, I'm, a, I'm not, I don't want to be a survivor. That means I just get through it. I want to be a thriver. I want to be the one they say, look, she had a career. It was all taken away from her and she came back bigger, stronger. And if she can do it, because all she's got is three pissy little skills, then I can do it. Because they, <laughs> there's a many, there are people who are technical or they're, you know, great business people, like all this stuff. I rely so heavily on those three skills. And so um, if you can, if you can't find light, it doesn't take real much, really. A candle in a dark room is not, that's all you need. If you can be that candle for somebody and not burn stuff down, do it. And sometimes Perfect. we think we don't have anything to give. And that's, that's not true. A kind word, um, uh, Hey, I heard about a job. Hey, there's an apartment available in my building. Like those things, those support things that you think, oh, it's so insignificant. It's never about what we think is significant. It's about what the, how, how it affects the receiver. And so I, that's what I do. My new project, My Golden Blood, is wickedly cool. I have, the great, I have a great partner. I'm in love with this project. And the big picture of this one is, yes, it's a great story and it'll be really wickedly cool and it goes to TV. We're also going to do a campaign to inspire our audience to become blood donors. There's a huge shortage in this country of people who donate blood. Only 4% of all the population does. Only set, It's a long story. Not everybody can for physical needs, reasons, whatever, age, et cetera. But there's only 4% of us, percent of us who do. And there's a, you can make an artificial heart that works, but you cannot create artificial blood. And if we become blood donors, people get that to that space. A teenager can do it. And you, they walk out of there different. And Tim, and I mean this so sincerely, but some, a teenager who thinks they have nothing they can give, they have no value, they have no worth. You give a pint of blood. If you're healthy and happy, you give a pint of blood. You've just saved three people's lives. And the beauty of it is you never know which three people those are. So you get to walk around your whole life thinking, wow, 
There's, there are people who, lit, who are alive today because I stopped, took a half an hour, got over my fear of needles and I gave blood. I know people who do it all, you know, every 56 days when they can, I'm a little overdue. So I'm looking for a swat before the end of the year and I'll go and I'll give blood. Why? Because I'm a different person. I gave something that nobody else could give. And if your blood is golden, which is a real thing, by the way, then you, booyah, you know, you, it's an amazing thing. So um, I, that's my jam. Like that's, and I had to learn all these things. It's not like I didn't know the bits and pieces of it, but I had to inculcate that into every single thing I do. As a mom, as a grandmother, as a film producer, as a partner, as a wife, as a restaurateur, like all those things, as a daughter, a caretaking daughter for older parents, everything I do has to bring light. And that's my job. And Excellent. that's all I've got. Excellent. Well, that is... Uh, Questions. And- yeah, that is, there's so many questions about, and it's about the state of Iowa and so many concerns about the state of Iowa at this point now, it's just, but yeah. I'm just going to explain to you real quick. I'm just, this is it. Here's in a nutshell, Iowa is an acronym for I oughta went around. That's all you got to say. That's it. Fair enough. Fair enough. You, you don't have these problems. If you don't go to Iowa, there are jumps, something places that just... I auto went around, saw a red flag, should have detoured. I feel that way about That's Nebraska, but for much lesser reasons. So, oh, so. I, you know, I hear that. I'm from Nebraska and I love loved being from there. I did. I loved it. I wouldn't live there, but I love being from there. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's a, it's like, it's a great place if you like flat areas. So, oh, right. So I lived in Omaha and we had hills. And I never even, yes. I've never been to Western Nebraska. So I never even knew that it was like, people talked about it. I'm like, yeah, whatever. For the first 60 miles, you know, go ahead there's and hills and it's like, not bad. And it's not bad. And then it gets get to nothing and you get to nothing. Flat. You're like, it's Flat. nothing. Flat. I get that. That's, <laughs> maybe you see a cow. There's a, oh, look, there's a cow. Okay. Whatever. Way so, out there, six miles away. All right. So. Wendy, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, ask you a couple questions that I ask every single guest who's ever been on focused on forward. So, Oh, I'll bet I answer them differently than everybody else. Well, that's the hope. I just, yeah, go for it. All right. So the first one is looking back over the entirety of your experience was the single greatest lesson you have learned. Great question. And the answer to that is that it's not about me. It's not about me, you know, whether I did something or not, it's not about me. It's who I can affect, positively affect. It takes, it was arrogance on my part. It was that I thought, oh, this is, this is happening to me. No, uh, it's not my time. I think it's God's time. And so it's not about me. It's about who I can, whose life I can change. I think that's an impressive answer, honestly, because you look back over what you've gone through and the things that happened to you to make it not about you, I think is very well, impressive. I think that's awesome that you looked at it um, in ways to find. I mean, the, the strip the searching, that was about me. That, that, that was a little bit about you. Those were about me. Yeah, that was about me. I kept saying, why Fair don't you enough. have tattoos? I just don't. Why don't you have tattoos? I just don't. We don't do that. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway. Okay. Next question. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So the second question. So that's is a, that was a weird caveat. It was all like lofty, you know, and then I went to strips of drink. Sorry. Okay. Fair enough. Go ahead. All right. So the second question, pretty similar to the first one, looking back over the entirety of your experience, what's the single greatest piece of advice that you were given? That I was given. Ooh, Wow. Wow. This, I was given so much great advice. Um, I'll take the one that stands out, which I, I would aspire to take this one seriously, but it stands out. As I was called into court, Mr. Thompson, a guard in the prison, said, oh, oh, that's cool. He said, here's what they want. They want to see remorse. 
write out a seven or a nine word apology. And then, the, then and just, I'm sorry, whatever. Write it out, memorize it, have it on the tip of your tongue. And then after you say what they want you to say, shut your pie hole and don't say another thing no matter what happens. And I never heard the phrase, shut your pie hole. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I can do that. So I'm in front of the judge and the judge has you stand up and he says, um, what have you learned? You know, what have you learned from this experience? You know, he said, no, first he said, you know, do you have anything to say to the court? And I say the seven or nine words, which for the love of God, I cannot remember. And that was it. And then the, and then he said, and I was about to stand, sit down and he said, just one more question. What do you take with you from this experience? And I was like, oh my God, I have to open my pie hole. This is terrible. Oh my God. <laughs> and I said, I take with it, I, I witnessed more of God's grace in six months than most people witness in a lifetime. And for the experience, I'm truly blessed. And the judge was just floored. So the fact is, sometimes people will tell you that you don't say anything no matter what. But when the opportunity comes, to, to add light to the situation, go ahead and do it anyway. Don't, as much as he had good intentions by telling me to not say anything, and he was probably right in most cases, for me at that time, I could drive the point home that I, I, that I, that I wanted to drive home. And the judge said, you're going home right now, and has been a big advocate for me ever since. So... People will give you, so what, what was, the advice was great. I wasn't able to take it, but sometimes there is that thing. He who speaks next loses. Don't say another thing. Let it go. And I try and take that very seriously. Still good advice. That's the, that's the best I've got off the top of my head. That was a really excellent question, Tim. Wow. Excellent. excellent. Thank you. I don't know that I did it just. You did. You did. I like it. And I tell people to shut their pie holes all the time. So I like it. All right. Uh, so Wendy, I have, I have so enjoyed having you on today and, and having an opportunity to hear your story. Honor's mine, sir. You know, it, it's one thing to read about your story. It's another thing to have a conversation with somebody and hear the person tell their story and, and see, right. you know, really how it's affected them. Um, but if, if my listeners right. and followers are interested in finding out more about you, where should they go? Mm -hmm. Oh, the National Enquirer is a good place to start. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I'm so low profile. I'm so low. So um, uh, mygoldenblood.com will be a great place. We will activate okay. that really after the first of the year. Mygoldenblood.com. And that's um, going to give you updates on the project and, and how people can get involved and, and all kinds of cool things. Um, people want to read the book, et cetera. So it's, it's a book. It's a young adult drama thriller book series that's going that's turning into a television series and um and the, that's a great way to do it um, you know obviously linkedin I, I i really appreciate linkedin yes. and um um that's how we connected and i'm very grateful for that tim for you reaching out i'm honored thank you so much and um so i think those two places if they're on the business side or from the hey curiosity side um i'm easy to reach wendy wendy at mygoldenblood.com if they have questions. Um, and um, I uh, appreciate the opportunity to just speak with you and uh, share the truth. The truth is there's always light. There's always light. It's just sometimes we don't see it. I love That's that. Not on, it's on us. Look for it. So thank you, Tim. I hope you have a fantastic 2022 and beyond. We're 20, Likewise. 2022. I hope... All your dreams come true in 2022. Oh, thank you so much. All right, guys, this has been Wendy Weiner-Rungi. We've been uh, able to listen to her story of overcoming and, and moving forward past a, a wrongful conviction. But we're, we're so glad to have this opportunity to have heard her story and heard the positivity that she's sharing out into the world despite her situation. We'll have that information down in the uh, uh, show notes below. You'll be able to contact her and look into My Golden Blood. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been Focused on Forward. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter at PodcastFOF, through our Facebook page named Focused on Forward, or through email, 
focusedonforward at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe, be kind, and be loving to one another as you stay focused on forward.